This episode features Professor Eric Priest, our first non-physicist. Professor Priest is an acclaimed mathematician and also a prominent speaker in the interactions between science and religion. Our discussion covers the overlaps between physics and maths, the interaction of all science and religion, and the differences that Professor Priest has found from his time as a student and today. Enjoy listening! You're listening to Insight, the University of St Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Avery. Join us as we journey into the lives of St Andrews academics, discovering their passions, inspirations and motivations. Today on Insight, we're very excited to welcome our first non-physicist, Professor Eric Priest. Thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure, Sam. So we're just going to start off a bit about um, your past. So could you maybe tell us a bit about your um, positions here at St. Andrews and what you do? Yes, I was appointed in 1968, a long time ago, as a lecturer in applied mathematics. Uh, and then was made a professor in 1983, which also seems a long time ago. Um, and then 2010, uh, I retired and became an emeritus professor. However, um, I still have an office. I still have exactly the same workhouse as I ever did. Uh, the only difference is I don't get paid for it, but that doesn't matter because I've got a reasonable pension, and um, it means I don't, also don't have any responsibility, so I can enjoy myself. That sounds not bad. And, uh, so I, I just feel I've been very fortunate to come here. Remember the uh, the phrase of Confucius is one I like. He said, uh, choose the career you love and you won't have to work a day in your life. And that's what I feel it's been like for me. I've just enjoyed every minute of it. And um, I specifically, when I left university, had a choice of going into a research institute somewhere, a National Research Institute, or trying to apply for a university. And I decided to apply for university because um, I could then... Uh, do both teaching and research, and both are equally important to me. I've always put a lot of energy into both of them. In fact, I've always described my position as being university teacher rather than professor or researcher or whatever. Mm, excellent. Sounds a lot less intimidating, university teacher, yeah. Mm. Um, so what, what kind of path led you here then? Uh, which university did you go to when... You were a student? Well, a series of uh, random choices, really. I think, um, you know, we often come to a fork in the road and it's not obvious which way we should go. I mean, maybe um, many students will find this when they're trying to decide what career to take up, for example. And I think it's important to become as informed as you can about the different paths um, and then just make, make a decision and go for it and put in all your energies, you know, not look back. Um, you're never going to know what what that path's going to be like, what's going to be down down the path. Um, but it's important just to just to really put your energies into it and not regret having not having gone on a different path. If it does happen to go pear shaped, then you can always go back and try something else. Um, so, I I was at school uh, near Birmingham and I applied to Nottingham University to do mathematics and physics and I was offered a place and I accepted it and then two years later I was two no two weeks later I was offered a place in Cambridge um, 
And, and so I just wrote back to them and said, I'm sorry, I've already accepted somewhere. Because my father had always taught me that your word is your bond. You know? And I've often wondered what would have happened in a different quantum universe if I'd made a different decision there. But anyway, I've been very happy with the choice I did make. So, um, and then when I was at Nottingham, uh, I became fascinated by the fact that the vorticity of a fluid is the curl of the velocity and the electric current is the curl of the magnetic field and I just thought it was weird that you should have these two relate vector relationships and so I thought well you know maybe I should go and do something that that studies vorticity or something that goes some research doing electric currents then I discovered that there was a, a subject with a huge long name called magnetohydrodynamics um, which involved both of them. So I said, I have to do that. You know, and then I discovered that the, really one of the pioneers of the subject was in Leeds. So I applied to go and do research with him in Leeds, and, and that's where I ended up. While I was at Leeds, uh, I can remember um, every summer going on a camp with a group of students and a group of Borstal boys you know, from Young Offenders Prison, basically. Yeah. Um, equal numbers of students and boys. And we used to, uh, for two weeks, we'd, we'd sleep in a tent, you know, two of each in each tent. Um, and that had a big impression on me because I realised there, but for the grace of God go I, you know, the, these postal boys were the same as me, basically, but their life had, had gone on unfortunate paths. So I just realized that we're all um, important regardless of our, our background, our status, our religion, our race, our sexuality or whatever. Each person is important and that, that, that re realization has kept me, with me. Anyway, um, I did a, a, an MSc for a year and then I did two years towards my three year PhD. Mm -hmm. But then that was, you were only given three years of worth of money. So I'd used it all up after two years of my PhD. Um, and so I decided I would apply for lectureships and looked in the newspaper and one came up in St Andrews. I didn't actually know where St Andrews was, but I applied for it um, uh, and was interviewed here. And I can remember that vividly because um, uh, at the time, um, there was a railway uh, joining Lucas, Lucas Junction, it was then, to St Andrews. Um, and I stood on the, on the station at Lucas there. This was 1968. The 60s were, you know, a, really a time of ideas being turned upside down, you know. Mm -hmm. New ideas coming up all the time. We were fans of the Beatles. We grew up with the Beatles. We all had long hair, you know. And... Um, uh, and um, there was a huge noise, the biggest noise I'd ever heard in my life, and I thought, my God, it, it's, it's a world war, it's the end of the world, you know. Because we were all terrified of that, it was the co in the middle of the Cold War. And then I, I saw a jet going over, and I, re I didn't know that we were right next to an Air Force base and, and realised what it was. So anyway, I breathed a sigh of relief, got on the train, um, and it wound its way along the Eden Estuary, past the golf courses. 
and I saw the towers of St Andrews coming up ahead and it was just like entering a magical world, Narnia or, or um, uh, something like that, or Hogwarts, you know. Um, and then I was interviewed in this room called the Hebdomadar's room and I just thought that was so quaint. Anyway, I was offered the job um, and I looked around and I thought, gosh, this is a really remote place, isn't it? I'll, I'll move on to somewhere more interesting after a couple of years. But um, I, I met my future wife. She was a final year student here and um, not in mathematics, I should add. And, um, and just fell in love with the place and, and I've been really happy here. So uh, that's, that's the kind of path that's led me to where I am at the moment. Excellent, yeah, so that's really a comprehensive path that choices that uh, led you to your outlook on life and mm. your positions here. Mm. Fantastic. So um, you're a mathematician, obviously, and I'm a physicist, and the two subjects are quite closely linked. I mean, a lot of your work overlaps with astro, astrophysics. So what do you think drives maths and physics together to be so similar and complement each other so well? Well, am I a mathematician or a physicist? I would say I'm really, I'm really at the junction between mathematics, physics and astronomy and often actually the most exciting areas of research are on the junction between different subjects, between chemistry and biology or biology and physics or physics and mathematics and, and, and so on. Um, so I have elements of both. I'm an applied mathematician, so I apply mathematical methods to physical problems, um, setting up theories for, for physical processes that, that one can see. But I'm equally interested in the observations and in the physical processes that are going on. So from th that point of view, I'm a physicist. I think in, in applied mathematics is... is um, you know, very prevalent in the UK, but not so much in other countries. So in many other countries, America, for example, I would probably be in a physics department. If I'm on a, an aeroplane and, and sit next to somebody and they ask me, you know, so what do you do? Then my answer really depends on uh, how sociable I'm feeling. <laughs> if I don't feel very sociable, I say I'm a mathematician and they look at me peculiarly <laughs> and, and get on with their their food. Uh, whereas if I'm feeling sociable, I say I'm an astronomer. And then they ask me about black holes or something like that. Sounds um, about right, yeah. But, um, but equally, you know, a lot of the theoretical physics in the general sense of that word, half of that is done in the physics department and half of it is done in applied mathematics, basically. I mean, the, the solar physics, the fluid dynamics, the, the biophysics, they're all done... Mm -hmm done here in applied mathematics so um, I think the labels you give to things are very flexible basically. How has the focus of research changed since you were a student? The focus of my own research um, and that's on, on the sun um, uh, applying mag magnetohydrodynamics to the sun has changed incredibly um, we just know so much more about the observations. Um, um, and part of the reason why it's so exciting is that there are so many observations, there are so many constraints on our theory. If I were a cosmologist, I could sit down and dream up lots of you know, fancy ways, but I couldn't test them, basically. Um, I mean, there's no way I know of 
for example, of testing whether a multiverse is real or not, whether there is a multiverse or not. But with the sun, we have lots of lots of observational constraints, and that's what makes it exciting to try and uh, try and produce theories that are consistent with with all those observations. So. Huge increase in ground-based telescope capabilities and in the number of space satellites um, has, has made a huge change there. But equally, I think the advances in theory have been driven by the advances in co computers. Now we can compute uh, in fantastic ways that we couldn't do before. So it's changed tremendously. I mean, I think the sun... Um, I say I'm an applied mathematician, applying my mathematical methods. Well, um, I decided to apply these methods to the sun, but um, if I get bored with that or I think, you know, I've solved all of the main things I'm interested in, then I'll try and apply the methods to somewhere else. But it doesn't look as if that's going to happen anywhere soon. Excellent. That's the way you want to keep it. Yeah, so part of the reason for the fascination about the sun is that Many of the key questions about the fundamentals of the sun are unanswered at the moment. Um, there's a magnetic field that's generated in the interior, but we don't know exactly how that, that generation, that dynamo mechanism takes place. The, the surface of the sun is only 6,000 degrees, but the atmosphere, the outer atmosphere, is a few million degrees. We know that somehow the magnetic field is heating it, but we don't know the details of how. That's one of the major problems we're working on here. The um, outer atmosphere is also expanding outwards from the sun, as it's called the solar wind, and uh, goes to supersonic f speeds so, and fills the solar system. So basically the Earth is an obstacle that's sitting in this supersonic solar wind that's flowing past it. Um, and we don't know how it's accelerated. That's another key question. Um, yet another one is the fact that occasionally you get huge eruptions from the sun of, 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 of mass and, and magnetic field. And they then interact with the, the Earth's outer atmosphere and create cell phone dropouts and aurora and... Um, you know, they it, they mean that airplanes have to avoid the polar routes and 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 yeah. travel to much lower latitudes. Um, so these are many key questions that we're trying to answer at the moment. And I think when we do, uh, when we have discovered the answers, that will have huge impact on the rest of astrophysics because these fundamental processes are taking place throughout the universe, in, in other stars, in galaxies, in black holes, and, and so on. And right at the core of that is the fact that um, we're dealing with a plasma. As you probably know, the plas plasma is the fourth state of matter. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, we on Earth here sit in a very unusual bubble of solids, liquids, and gases. You go from one to the other by increasing the temperature. But if you increase the temperature of any gas enough, it will become a plasma, it will become an ionized gas. Mm -hmm. But we give it a different name just because it behaves so differently. And on the kind of scales that we're looking at on the sun, the key difference is its relation with the magnetic field. So there's a magnetic field in this room, but it has virtually no effect on us. You know, we're, we're really unaware of it unless we happen to have a compass. Um, Whereas in a plasma, 
the magnetic field and the plasma interact together in very subtle, nonlinear, complex ways. So everything the magnetic field does affects the plasma and vice versa. And that interaction is described by these equations of magnetohydrodynamics, which are a unification of the equations of fluid mechanics and Maxwell. And to me, they're the most beautiful thing I know. These equations are just wonderful in their structure and in the what we can deduce from them. Um, Excellent, yeah. So you're really getting a run for your money with these equations, and there's a lot of questions to be solved. But there's a lot of people working on them. Do you maybe have a mathematician who deserves more recognition or an idol in the mathematics community? Um, I think it very much depends on the particular topic you're looking at. I mean, if you were looking at the theory, dynamo theory or coronal heating or solar wind acceleration or eruptions, then there would be one person that was really um, dominating that, I would think, or, or would be a name that everybody would think of. But it's very much an international community. You know, we, we have lots of collaborations with people all over the world. And um, international visitors are continually coming here because uh, we're very fortunate that the, the, the solar theory group here is, is one of the very best in the world. I mean, all the solar physicists in the world know about it, and, and many of them have interacted with us. So um, it's just a very great privilege to be able to meet people from so many different countries and, and to engage with them. And, you know, cut, a, uh, cut across any differences you might have. Yeah, excellent. And um, in St Andrews, we have good interactions between lecturers and staff and students. But how did you find interactions with lecturers when you were a student? Was it, was it intimidating? Was it friendly? Or? Yes, I did. I, I found it pretty intimidating, I think. I mean, the, the lecturers were distant people. You know, you would... Uh, a, you would approach them with a, in a state of reverence, I think. You know, I mean, I can remember even my, my supervisor. He was a wonderful old man. I learned a lot from him. But he was very much one of the old school. And I would walk into his office. He would give me an hour and a half every week. Um, and I would walk into his office. And he would say, good morning, priest. And I would say, good morning, Professor Cowling. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? It's like a Japanese tea ceremony, you know. And we would sit down, and, and so it was, it was very formal, but at the same time, he was incredibly helpful. I just learned so much from him. But he, he had very, you know, re he was a very eminent man. He was a fellow of the Royal Society and, and uh, had done a huge amount and was a major figure in, in the field. Um, but he published hardly any papers. He published about 20 papers in his career or something. And so I think it was something like uh, three years after I'd finished my PhD. I mean, my first year in St. Andrews, I had a full lecturing load. I was courting my girlfriend and I was <laughs> finishing my PhD. So I've never worked so hard in my life. It's been e easy ever since. Um. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> um, Possibly worryingly big part of student life is uh, procrastinating. So what's the latest that you've started studying before a test or deadline? Oh, I tend to be pretty organised, actually. I, I always like to... Um, I, I always like to do things well in advance, make sure... I, I mean, I was lucky, as a, really lucky as a student, because 
I found mathematics really easy. So um, I would go to lectures in the morning and the afternoons I would, I would read the, through the lectures and I would make sure I understood them, read a few books around the subject. I never ever worked one week, one evening, and I never ever worked on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, in my whole three years as a student. So I just found it very easy. And that, so I was lucky, I think. And, and so equally, you know, when it was a case of revising for tests, I'd, I'd work hard at it in the two weeks leading up to it. But, you know, then I'd make sure that I was, um, wasn't overtired when it actually came to the test and I was relaxed. And, um, and I've always, always thought that it's, re you know, tension is good provided it's not too great. You know, I think tension does spur you to your adrenaline to go and you to, you to do th things and think more clearly than you could do otherwise. But too much of it is really damaging to your health. And so for me, it's always been important to try and find a way of relaxing, you know, every week, every day. I mean, I, I, I never work in the last hour before I go to bed. I always, you know, just... Um, you know, do something relaxing. And, and I like to do something relaxing every day. Every morning I, I uh, spend at least half an hour singing, for example. You know, so, so for me, the two ways of relaxing have been by doing sport. I've done, always done some exercise. Um, uh, climbing mountains was one of, one of my, in Scotland, was one of my keys. I managed to climb all the Munros a few years ago. So, Congratulations. Uh, and, uh, but, but I've always gone along to the gym and always been involved in different, tried different sports over the years. So getting exercise for me has been a really important way of relaxing. And also music has been very important for relaxing. I, I, I love singing and, and uh, I've always enjoyed that. Not terribly good at it, but I, I enjoy it. Excellent, yeah. Is there um, maybe like one thing that's better about being a student now and possibly one thing that's worse that you could point to? Hmm. It's just so different. Or I what would you think, I think is what, major I think what is then? worse for students and for the young staff, actually, is that people are under a lot more stress than we ever were. Um... um I mean, we felt we could go along to lectures we were interested in, and I, I've never felt under great stress in my job, whereas I think now a lot of the young lecturers are under a lot of stress and a lot of tension. You know, the, the desire to succeed and to, to compete. I think competition is a lot greater now. Um, and I think that's a pity because what it does is to drive people into becoming over-specialised. They just feel, I can only go along to a lecture if it's right on my subject. You know, whereas I've always been interested in a wide variety of different things. And so, for example, whenever there's an inaugural lecture on here, it doesn't matter whether it's history or languages or philosophy or economics or whatever, or chemistry or biology, I always go along to it if, I'm, if I happen to be around, if I'm, if I'm free. And I always find it interesting and always learn something new. So I think as well as focusing on your speciality, it's important to keep a general understanding of, of science as a whole and the relationship of what you're doing to what other people are doing. But these inaugural lectures, you know, that you often see, you try, I would suggest you try and go along to them. You'd find they're, they're usually pitched just at the right level and they're absolutely fascinating. It's a good tip. I'll keep that in mind. 
So you're also quite a prominent speaker on the intersection between science and faith and religion. Um, was there either faith or fascination with maths that developed first for you? I think a fascination with mathematics. I mean, I, nobody in my family had ever gone to church before. I was the first person to become interested in that. Um, and so I think I was developing my my mathematics first before I developed an interest in Christianity. Um, and it's interesting because there is, a, to me, a clear relationship between the two. In other words, the way in which I think and work as a scientist really affects the way I think as, as a Christian. Um, so being a scientist is not cold and logical, done something by impersonal people in white coats, you know. Um, it, it involves creativity and leaps of faith. It involves intuition. It involves openness and questioning. And it involves trust in, in the rest of the scientific community. These aspects are right at the core of what it is to be a scientist. Um, and, uh, you know, and that in turn leads you to a sense of humility. So if you see a scientist being arrogant, they're not being true to their science, I think. But in the same way, for me, Christianity has the same aspects. So it involves trust and leaps of faith. It often gives me a sense of beauty and wonder, which leads to a sense of humility and of how it's important that I value and respect other people's beliefs if they're different from my own. Um, openness and questioning to me are right at the core of being a Christian. I've, so just as I'm on a journey of discovery as a scientist, so I'm on a, a pilgrimage, I'm on a journey of discovery as a, as, a, as a Christian. My ideas continue to change. And of course in that, the sense of community is very important as well. So to me, they're, they're, they're very parallel, very similar to mm -hmm. one another. Yeah, so um, maths is kind of a tool to understand the universe. And do you think that God intended for maths to be such and is seeking knowledge and understanding a form of worship then? I think God, um, it, God reveals himself through um, normal Christian ways, in other words, through the Bible, uh, through worship. Um, but he equally... Uh, um, reveals himself through nature and through what he's created. Um, so uh, I think they're both equally important, actually. Um, you know, when I'm out in the hills walking, climbing up a Monroe, I often get a wonderful sense of beauty and the, and the majesty of, of, of God. So um, I think it's, it's really interesting how when you study science, you realize that mathematics underpins the universe somehow. You know, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Why is it that the behavior of clouds or of rivers or of the sun should be governed by mathematics? You know, it's, it's just weird. Um, uh, and there's a kind of symmetry and elegance in the universe when you look at, look at it in great detail. And so for me, that doesn't prove the existence of God. But it is consistent with it, I think. Hmm. Excellent. So as maths is, it's a very logically grounded subject and 
you know, you build up the whole of mathematics from very basic axioms. Mm. Has that ever conflicted with your faith or, or tested your belief? That's interesting, uh, an interesting question. Um, when I was at Nottingham, I became interested in Christianity and, and started going along to the chapel services there. And, and I wondered whether to become confirmed, to become a member of the, of the Church of England, which was the main church then. Um, but I had a problem. And so I went along to a very wise old man uh, and I said, you know, I'm wondering whether to be confirmed or not, but I have this problem. He said, what's the problem? He said, so I said, well, as a scientist, I can't understand how Jesus could have been resurrected and raised from the dead, how it could come alive. I can't understand how that could happen as a scientist. You know, so I don't know whether I believe in the resurrection or not. And he said to me, well... Um, what's your attitude to Jesus? And I said, well, I've, I've read about him in, in the New Testament and I'm just absolutely fascinated by him. I think the things he says, the ideas that he puts forward really seem to resonate for me. They really seem to be right. And I, I want to, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life following up his ideas and seeing how they work out in practice. And so this wise old man said, well, you've just told me you want to be a Christian. So what's stopping you? So, so I, I did then become confirmed. And later on, I, I kind of realized that if God exists, you know, if God exists, when you start to think about that, that is just an incredible reality if it's true. And so I thought, well, if God does exist, then it would be trivial for Jesus to be resurrected from the dead from the dead. So that no longer became an issue for me. I didn't I didn't I don't still don't understand how it how it occurred, but there are many things I don't understand in life. Um, and I don't think you can ever uh, prove the existence of God. Um, and I also could, can't prove to you that my theory of solar flares is correct, right? What I can do is discuss with you whether it's consistent with the observations we have at present or not, right? So I can't prove any theory is correct, uh, but I can talk about consistency, and I think the same is true of the existence of God. I can't prove the existence of God. People have tried for centuries, and nobody's ever been successful. But what, what you can do is say, is the existence of God or the non-existence of God more consistent with your experience. And so for me at the moment, the existence of God is more consistent with my experience. It may change in future, but for the moment, and so I'm prepared to live my life under the assumption that he does exist. So that's so. my attitude to science then is really affecting the, the way I think about Christianity. Mm -hmm. So they're intertwined then? They're not two separate boxes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Excellent. No, that's, that's really interesting to hear. Um, how do you think that Christianity, or religion in general even, will change moving into the future? How will Christianity change? Well, um, in one way, uh, what I hope is that in this century, 
um, Christians can have the humility to engage much more with um, Islam, to, with Muslims, um, to dialogue with them, to respect them, to try and understand them. You don't have to agree with them, but I think it's really important that we have contact with them and that more contact with them and that we encourage good relationships between the two. We once had uh, these James Gregory lectures that I helped to run. Um, we once ha had a Muslim uh, who came along and spoke to us. Um, and uh, I, as, as I always do, I took him into the local schools and we had an open session for an hour of questions and answer from the, the, the people doing hire hires and um, uh, one of them asked him the question uh, so is why why do you think Islam is better than Christianity that's not something I would say no but <laughs> um, I came out with this question he said well I don't know whether it's better or not he was a very gentle man he was a Sufi Muslim and very obviously deeply spiritual and uh, you know very kind gentle person and he said well I don't know whether it's better or not. You know, it happens to appeal to me, but that's probably because of my hist own history. He said, for me, I think, as Christians and Muslims, we're on different roads up a mountain and we'll meet at the top somehow. So you know, I found that, that a very interesting... It's a very simple idea, but, but a very interesting one. Um, another example, I, I was once in Alexandria... Um, uh, helping organize a conference um, to do with an eclipse of the sun that was, that was taking place there. And um, they asked me to go after the conference to uh, give a talk to young people, so um, school children and mainly school children, but also um, first year university students. And I thought, oh, that's fine. Yeah, they wanted me to talk about science and culture. Um, and I thought, oh, there'll probably be about 50 there. And we went along into the new bibliotheque of Alexandria, and there were 850 people there. <laughs> <laughs> Two-thirds of them were women, all wearing headdresses, you know. And I thought, wow. But anyway, afterwards, um, they came up to me in small groups to ask me questions. And I can remember one little group in particular, uh, a group of young girls, and it was really noticeable to me that they were... Wearing, they weren't uniform at all. They each wanted to know the answers to the questions. Um, and also, they were wearing their headdresses in different ways. They had different coloured headdresses, wearing them in different ways, just as the way, you know, our teenagers will wear their hair in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and they asked me lots of questions. And at the end of that, I said to them, you know, um, you're Muslims, I, I, I'm a Christian. As far as I'm concerned, we're sister religions. And I hope that in this century we can really work together to come to love each other, to appreciate each other, and to agree to live at peace. Those young girls had tears in their eyes. One of them put her hand on her heart, and she said, you make my heart warm. I never thought I would hear words like that. We hear from our media that the West hates us. We hear about Abu Ghraib, Danish cartoons, slaughter in Iraq, in Palestine. The West hates us, and you're telling us something completely different which warms our hearts. So 
you know, that stuck with me ever since and made me feel that I must do all I can in small ways mm-hmm. to encourage better relations with Muslims, you know. Because I think if we don't, you know, we're set for a disasters in this century. Mm-hmm. And we really have to try and help moderate-minded Muslims, you know, and, and, and help to undermine the extremists somehow. Mm-hmm. I think. So the, the future will be about establishing a dialogue and widening people's learnings across both Christianity and Islam. I think that I think that's re- that's really important. Yeah. A second way, though, I think in which Christianity will change is that I think Christian theology will have to evolve and rethink some of its doctrines in the light of scientific discoveries, because, as I say, science is revealing us many things about the nature of God. And I think our current understanding is is very human in in the way it's been been set down. Um, obviously, it's been inspired as well. But I think because of humanity, we've probably misinterpreted or misunderstood some things that God was trying to tell us. So, um, uh, so for example, um, the doctrine of the fall. People say that you know Adam and Eve, you know. They sinned, and so we're, that's why we're all sinners. You know, I just think that's garbage. I, and but I think you can develop an understanding as to why we tend to be selfish. You know, why we go wrong. You know, using uh, understanding evolution of human beings and understanding the nature of psychology. So and I think that's what we need to do to Im- to m- improve Christian doctrine in future. And I, and I also hope that. Christianity will be able to engage much better with young people mm-hmm. yeah. because a lot of people have been put off by Sunday school ideas about Christianity and, and, or put off by experiences um, and I think that's very unfortunate. So um, one final religion question. Um, you spoke yourself about science kind of laying bare the wonders of the universe that God's created and, you know, the majesty of God's creation. But is there more that the church can do for science? Well, um, historically, the church has done a lot for science. I mean, the founding of the Royal Society in the 17th century was by Christians, mainly, who were inspired to try and understand the nature of God's universe. You know, so the church has always been actively involved in, in, in religion. And um, so I, I see, basically, I, I, I feel that the, the conflict between science and, and religion is, is a myth, I don't think. It was one that was proposed at the end of the 19th century. And um, uh, the Galileo conflict was certainly not a conflict between science and religion. It was a conflict between different sciences, actually. And between an arrogant Galileo and, and the church. So um, it's, it's, it's a human conflict. It's nothing to do with com- science and religion ideas. Um, and for me, um, I, I, I think where... You see, if you look back before the 17th century, science, scientia and religio were integrated because they were both regarded as virtues. They had different meanings. Scientia meant knowledge and religio meant devotional activities. And they were both regarded as virtues that that good people 
would, would practice, you see. But then that broke apart in the 17th century with the rise of science and the, later on in the 19th century with the professionalization of science. Um, so they split apart. But uh, for me, they're now coming back together. Um, and uh, so for me, they're not separate. I think... In fact, I think the science, I don't think you should talk about science, I think you should talk about the sciences. There's no such thing as the scientific method. There are lots of different methods that we use in science. So I think the sciences, you know, mingle into one another, they merge into one another. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of rainbow tapestry of sciences, basically. That's why, you know, the difference between physics and maths and astronomy yeah. is an artificial one, really. But I equally think the sciences merge into the humanities. They merge into psychology, into sociology, and, um, and also into theology. I think they're all a rainbow mixture. Um, they're part of an integrated whole. Um, but uh, whereas in the, before the 17th century it was the fact they were both virtues that united them, what is it that unites them today? So it's less well, about yeah. what one can do for the other rather than resolving that there is no I think, animosity I think, and also understanding that they're part of, part of a whole. So what it is they have in common now is that I think they're both um, a search for understanding. That's true of all the humanities and it's true of theology and it's true of all the sciences. A search for um, understanding that combines reason and imagination and both are equally important for us. Okay, excellent. So we're going to move on to um, quickfire questions, so you can be a bit quicker about your answers to these. You don't need to rattle off one-word answers, however. So do you prefer one-off movies or extensive TV shows that you can really delve into? Oh, I like TV shows because you can really enter into the characters. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favourite music genre and song? You've said yourself you like to sing quite a bit. I love singing, but I'm, I'm fairly broad in my interests. I, I love jazz and I love folk music, but I would say classical music, aspects of classical music really appeal to me. I love the songs of Forêt and of Purcell, um, and I would say, well, my favourite piece of music probably is still Handel's Messiah because I've sung it at least 20 times and it still brings a tingle to my back when I sing it. <laughs> wonderful one to belt out in the shower yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> do you have a favorite passage or section of the bible oh gosh there are just so many so many good passages i mean there's a simple little one uh, actually in the old testament ecclesiastes which just says there's a time and place for everything you know and so i think that's saying to me it's important to immerse yourself in the present and do what is appropriate for the present whether that's being with someone else or helping someone else or whatever and not worry about the other things that are around about it's a very simple mm -hmm. simple but beautiful sentiment do you have a favorite animal uh dolphin dolphin excellent. yeah and are you a dolphin? especially having swim swam with one. Oh right wow. yeah. yeah and stroke them they're amazing 
and realizing just how intelligent they are. They, you, you know, they, they, they took um, dolphins, some dolphins at birth and separated them. Dolphins can recognize, I think it's at least a hundred different dolphins by their sound, by their, their sound, the noises they make. You know, and they separated two at birth, and I think they brought them back 20 years later, and they recognized each other. I mean, that's just amazing. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> a little more of a closer-to-home animal, maybe. Uh, dogs or cats? Are you a dog person or a cat person? Dogs. Do you know that um, humans, one, one thing humans do, and we, we first did when we looked at each other, when you first look at each other, you look now, but I've forgotten which side of the face it is. It's the, it's either the right or the left side of the face. You automatically look at one side of the face rather than the other, and it's because one side of your face shows your emotions much more than the other. So without realizing it, we're intuitively accessing the emotions of the person we look at. Now, no other animal does that to its own species, but dogs do it to to humans. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. <laughs> so there's a lot of empathy there. Yeah. Which is your favorite piece of flora? Which is your favorite flower or tree or shrubbery? Oh, it has to be the redwoods in California. They are just so majest- majestic. They've, li- you know, they've lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and you, you just feel a sense of awe in their presence. Yeah, they're definitely grand stature. What is your drink of choice? Uh, it depends how I'm feeling. <laughs> sometimes it will be ginger beer. Sometimes it will be uh, a nice dark beer. And sometimes it will be a glass of red wine. So it all depends all what depends I'm feeling like. It depends on the setting, yeah. yeah. But is there a definitively best condiment if you're having a meal? Are you going to go for the ketchup, the pepper, mayo? I always <laughs> put pepper on, yeah. But that's because I'm getting old, we see, older, and, and your taste isn't quite as good. So you need something to help your taste buds along when you're older. You, it'll come to you eventually. <laughs> something to look forward to. Do you have a favourite type of chocolate? Dark chocolate, yeah. Mm, good choice. Do you have a favourite scientific communicator? Um, David Attenborough, it has to be. I, I just think that it's interesting because he's not a Christian, but through his um, his programs, he's just filled me with such uh, a feeling of awe about the beauty and diversity of nature. He's, he's very good at what he does, yeah. Absolutely. And I've met him several times, and he's a real joy to meet, too. Oh, wow. So I've been fortunate. Yeah, quite the claim to fame. Um, do you have a favorite non-academic book? non-academic book um yeah there's one by desmond tutu uh which i absolutely love and then there's a, another that i've recently read by jonathan sachs called not in god's name in, in which he 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 really he just gave so many insights into the nature of the current conflict with islam and he says that whenever people kill in the in the name of religion the still small voice of God says, not in my name. That's why the title of the book. And to finish us off, this is not a quick fire question. Do you have any advice for young scientists struggling to reconcile conflicting beliefs that they have? Well, I think it's important um, 
to recognize that there are different kinds of questions, uh, scientific questions and non-scientific questions. Um, and so, um, and in fact, to me as a scientist, the non-scientific questions are just as important as the scientific questions, sometimes more important. Um, so there are many aspects of my life as a human that uh, I can't answer with science. Um, the nature of beauty, you know. Why do I think that that sunset is so beautiful? Um, love, you know, when I'm in love with my, my... I am in love with my wife. I'm very lucky, very fortunate. Um, uh, what is my purpose in life? What should I do with my life? You know, these are kinds of questions that um, science has no answers to. But Christianity can help you address them. And that's partly why I think you need both science and Christianity. Um, so I think recognizing that there are different questions um, and really searching for the the wonder and the beauty in in in, in both I think is important. Um, I also think it's important to try try things. I mean, if you've you've uh, belonged to church or and have had bad experiences in church, then then you know. Try it out again, and try it for a few weeks, and try and get to know people and and discuss with them, um, because often you'll find that your beliefs are very sim much more similar to them than you thought they were. So I think I think engaging is important. One one of the barriers I think to advancement in our society is polarization, where people just refuse to talk or listen to each other. It's important that we listen in humility and we share. So, don't know whether that helps or not, but... <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sam. You've been listening to Insight, the University of St. Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I was your host, Samuel Lavery. Thanks to all the wonderful academics of St. Andrews, Join us in the future as we learn more of the people making our education. This podcast was produced by myself and our publicity officer, Connor McBride. To find out more about the Physics Society and what we do, please find us on Facebook or Google St. Andrew's Physics Society for our website. Goodbye!